Go to Hebrews 12. Let me set this up this way. If you could go to brunch today with anybody in history, okay, let's, let's leave Jesus off the table. That's too easy, okay? That's the middle square on the bingo card, okay? So, yeah. Um, you have to be of a certain age to get that reference, by the way. Um, so if you could go to brunch with anybody in history, who would it be? Now, you, none of you, many of you who've been around me uh, very much lately know that I would probably, you know, Washington would be on the short list. Uh, I've just read so much about him, and and uh, Rhonda can tell you when we were we were in Mount Vernon over the summer, over the late springtime. I I walked those grounds with a lump in my throat the whole time. Um, so if I could really set up what I wanted to, it'd probably be Washington and Hamilton and, and, and talk to those guys about what what really happened in those days. I remember when I was uh, uh, in college, my uh, my freshman. Uh, American history teacher at your alma mater, Cliff, um, was telling me all about these things that happened. And I would go uh, to Pale on the weekends and sit with my grandfather who had served in World War I and World War II. And I'd say, okay, Papa, tell me how it really was. Because he lived history. Uh, so if you could sit down at lunch or brunch with anybody, um, who would it be? But the truth is, chances are, those meetings may not be as pleasant as you'd like them to be. After all, why would such a leader uh, acknowledge us? And now, why am I with you today? You know, they would, I'm afraid they would say. But the truth is, the only way that a meeting could happen like that is if someone connected, someone equally great or maybe even greater arranged that introduction. Well, I'm going to talk to you about somebody like that today. Uh, the Bible tells us, uh, we looked at this a couple of weeks back, but um, at Mount Sinai to approach God was forbidden. Even to approach the mountain on which Moses met God was kind of forbidden for the rank and file people. Um, in that scenario, um, uh, we, we see God as kind of unapproachable and pretty scary. We contrast this. We looked at it just a little bit last week, but we contrast it to the New Testament idea, certainly in the, in the book of Hebrews, that God now is, uh, there's a new heavens and a new earth, and uh, believers are now welcomed into God's presence. Uh, we looked at Hebrews 4.16 last week that said we can approach God with uh, confidence because of grace. Something significant has changed that allows us into God's presence. Somebody significant has made that introduction. I want us to talk about him today. Now, we really don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. I, uh, in seminary, spent a good, uh, a good summer semester dealing with who wrote the book of Hebrews and then had to write papers on who wrote the book of Hebrews. And I'm going to tell you, I studied it for hours and hours and hours, wrote paper after paper, and I still don't know. If, if you meet a scholar who tells you they know who wrote the book of Hebrews, you probably want to slap them in the face, because I'm not real sure that anybody knows. Um, you're, if you're reading from a King James Bible, it will say the epistle of the Apostle Paul to the Hebrews. That, that was kind of the old thought. Uh, that, was a, that was an ex, uh, a way that this book could be accepted uh, into the New Testament canon, even though 
generally believe that Paul probably didn't write it. Now, the truth is, uh, the book of Galatians kind of mirrors it a little bit, and that would be kind of good uh, evidence to the contrary. In fact, we looked at, um, uh, last week, we looked at uh, Hebrews quoting um, uh, quoting a, a long portion of Jeremiah 31 where we were last week in Hebrews 8. Well, there's kind of that similar thought in the book of Galatians. But what we do know is that it, does, it doesn't identify who the writer is like most books do, most of the New Testaments do. But we do know this. We kind of know more about who it was written to than who it was written by. Yes, Jopi. What? A shot? Give us your best shot. Silas. Silas. Paul's traveling companion. But, I, but I'm, that's a shot. You asked me to take a shot. Okay? You know, that's one hypothesis. Uh, now, now, John, do I remember? I don't remember Timothy being a reference here, but I may have missed something. Okay, is he referenced at the end? Okay, all right, okay. So that, okay. Uh, it talks about, certainly talks a lot about Rome and the Romans. Um, Sylvanus is talked about in there, which may be Silas. I don't know. It, okay, so, don't know. Yeah. So it wasn't quite as personal. Okay. Well, I'm going to start a debate right here. This is good. I just meant to go right by this. And I'm, I'm not allowed. It's kind of wonderful. I'm glad you're interested in this, okay? Now, if, if you want to believe Paul wrote it, that's okay. I mean, because nobody knows. It really, nobody knows. The reason it's included in our New Testament canon is because this is wonderful. It was too good to omit. It's like we, our... our Bibles wouldn't be complete without it, and they were already using it. It was already being kind of circulated and used. It's got some great theological concepts that are consistent with the rest of the New Testament, but weren't being said quite in the same way. So, well, anyway, we do know who it was written to. It was written to Jewish Christians. So think about that. I was in a conversation with a, a rather new believer this week where he couldn't get his mind around, how can you be Jewish and be Christian? Okay, Jewish Christians, okay? So they had Jewish heritage. They'd been raised Jewish. But it accepted Jesus as the Messiah. They were no longer looking for the Messiah. They realized he had come. That In the same position as the Apostle Paul. But unlike the Apostle Paul, these people persecuted in Rome in the first century. Most of them were living in Rome to whom were being written. Unlike the Apostle Paul, these folks were defecting. When the heat got really hot, it was okay and legal to be Jewish, but not to be Christian. And so many of them were reverting back to their Jewish heritage and turning their back on Jesus. Even though they had received grace, the Holy Spirit, all those things that are talked about in the book of Hebrews. So what, here's the way to think about it. It's a person who uh, grew up in the synagogue, starts to come to church, 
and now they go back to the synagogue. That make some sense. Living in Rome under persecution. That's kind of the idea. Now, as, as the writer here begins to talk about this, he says, you know what? That's not an option. Can we read about that in chapter 2? A warning about it, and certainly a warning about it in chapter 6. So, the bottom line is not, um, that there are a lot of comparisons taking place in this book. The bottom line is not that the Old Testament is bad. It's just that there is a new covenant that is active, making the old one obsolete, superseded by this better covenant. You read about that in chapter 8. We looked at chapter 8 a little bit last week. Now, our lesson today relies on the imagination. It'll help us some because a few weeks back we studied um, the Hebrew people gathered at Mount Sinai. And remember uh, that uh, awesome moment. It was a place of terrifying thunder when they received the law. Lightning, supernatural trumpet blast, all those things caused everybody to tremble. This filled the hearts of the people with fear that we got to keep that unique, awe-inspiring event from Israel's past in mind as we begin to look at what, how, how the writer um, compares the new covenant when it was received and as we receive it today. Steve Blair, can I get you to start? We're at chapter 12. Uh, if you'd start at 14 and read a good little section there down to 21. You remember that from a few weeks back when we looked at that picture? Okay, kind of keep that image in your mind as we study this. Now, let's go back now to verse uh, 14. And I think you'll, you'll get a sense of this if you understand the background that we talked about a few minutes ago, that this passage carries with it a, a really kind of an ominous sense of urgency. It's urgent. This message is urgent. Jewish Christians are defecting the synagogue. They're leaving the synagogue. There's, you could argue there's kind of a church split here. Bitter words have been exchanged. And, and so they're getting some coaching here on how to handle this. Now, I'm going to ask a couple of you to help me find some verses. Uh, so a couple of them are, are listed on your outline and one is not. Who will go to Psalm 2911 in just a minute? Some, thank you, John. Psalm 2911, Matthew 5, 8. Thank you, Jan. John and Jan, that sounds like a musical group. Okay. Um, the one that's not on your list is 1 Peter 1, verse 15 and 16. 1 Peter 1, verse 15 and 16. Go get that one. 
Cindy, will you get that one? Okay. Jopi, I'll come back to you in just a minute because I got some of this way to do. All right, now, the message here carries a sense of urgency. And what I want us to talk about is why we think so. Now, now here, um, I think as I begin this, this uh, chapter 12, well, every chapter in the book of Hebrews is, is golden. Uh, uh, as I said, I'm trying to coach a young believer on how to read the Bible for himself. And uh, often in, in our time together, uh, he's reading the Bible every day for himself, marking it up, writing about it, and that kind of stuff. Often in our time together, I will take him to uh, kind of an obvious place with all kinds of um, great insight, verse by verse by verse, to kind of illustrate what we're to do together. Hebrews 12 would be one of those places. Not really any chapter of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews would kind of be one of those places. Might get a little lost talking about Melchizedek in chapter 7, but, but otherwise. Um, um, but so, so this is one of those. But if you look at 1214, this could be, if you've never found one, this could be a pretty good life verse. Let me read it from the New American Standard. Steve probably read it from this same uh, path, uh, 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 translation a bit ago. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Um, if, if you're looking at the NIV, it's going to say something like, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, what a great way to live life. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That, that's just, that's good advice. You know, that's something to live by. So what a great place to start. Now, what you and I have got to catch here is that the Old Testament idea of shalom, the peace of God, is not just taught in the Old Testament, it's taught in the New Testament. The old, the, the, what you and I sometimes consider to be a, a New Testament idea of sanctification or holiness is not just a New Testament thought. It's an Old Testament thought. These, these ideas are brought over from places like the book of Leviticus, etc. So this is not a new thought, but it's kind of circling back around. Now, let's look here at a couple of things that are said. Uh, Psalm 29, 11. John? The Lord blesses his people with shalom. Same idea here. Now, the idea, the concept of peace here is not just, you know, you and I in our day think about a ceasefire as being a time of peace. It's a time of war, and everybody lays their guns down for a period of time. And they begin to negotiate. This is not that. Not just an absence or a, a conflict or a ceasefire. This is peace for good from now on. Uh, let's look at, another, look at what Jesus says here. And, and by the way, it's accompanied by the, this kind of attitude of life to live in peace with my fellow man and in holiness before God. Um, this is a Jesus idea as well. Jan, did I have you get Matthew 5, 8? Right in the middle of the, um, of the Beatitudes, really, uh, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount. So really, in context, both of these thoughts are there. Blessed are the pure in heart. Those who are pure, their hearts are pure before God. 
because they're going to see God. It's, it's kind of this, this wonderful pattern of life. Now, I want, I want to catch another place where Peter addresses this as well in the New Testament. 1 Peter 1, and we're going to read verse 15 and 16. Cindy? If we took all that out of context and said, well, you know, Peter said that. Peter said a lot of stuff. But Jesus says it too. Uh, and it said in the Old Testament, this idea that I need to live a sanctified life, a different kind of life. We talked about this a little bit last week, didn't we? A different quality of life before God. What a great way to live a good life verse to live in peace with the world and in holiness before God. That kind of reminds me of the end of uh, that list of uh, spiritual fruit in Galatians 5 when uh, he kind of sums it up by saying, against such things there is no law. Nobody would tell you this isn't a good way to live. At peace with man, holiness before God. Let that ruminate for a minute, and we'll go on. But what's happening here is we, we want to think about a church split here. Some embarrassing things have been said. You can put the word embarrassment in the next blank. It's an embarrassment when anger and bitterness grow within the church. Uh, I wrote this statement that I read this week. There is no justification for ungodly action. I can make all the excuses I want to, but there's no justification for ungodly actions. And there have been a lot of ungodly things that have taken place, probably some things that people have said to one another and about one another that they, they, if they regret, they're not admitting it. They just part company. And it's causing some to retreat all the way out of the church and back to the synagogue. Here's my thought on living at peace with our fellow man especially within the church. If you read the book, we're going to be living together forever. Uh, have you caught that yet? You heard this story about the guy that was shipwrecked on a desert island? And they finally rescue him and uh, come up on this island. He's all by himself. And uh, they see a hut, and he said, they say, what's the, the, the rescuers, you know, what is that building over there? Well, that's my home, I built that, you know, while I was here, I've been here for years. Well, I see another hut over there that's got a cross on top of it. What's that? Well, that's my church. Yeah, but there's another hut across, across the island with, that has a cross on top. What is that? Well, that's the church I used to go to. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, if that fits you, I don't want to talk about it, okay? <laughs> Live it. Peace with each other. Holiness before God. By the way, one of those has a lot to do with the other, doesn't it? I, I think. So he's going to take us, the writer, I'm going to skip ahead a couple of verses. The, the writer is going to take us back 
to what I will call the Exodus phenomena. And I think I said this right, you English people in here, get me straight here. Because uh, it's not a phenomenon, that's one. It's several phenomena, okay? Uh, did I say it right? Okay. Sally, did I say that right? I know you're a school teacher, so okay. It's, it's several, um, several phenomena together. If you remember back then, I referenced it back to Exodus 19 when we were there a little before. If you remember, if you'll let me re remind you, they were kind of camped out. The nation of Israel was camped out at the foot of the mountain of God. Okay? They uh, were told, don't touch it, don't approach it, except for Moses. Um, um, it was possible, what you got to catch, this, this isn't just some imagery. You could touch the mountain of God, but they said, don't do it. God said, don't do it. What was the atmosphere? What were these phenomena? You remember this? What all was going on? That was so awesome. It's referred to here in verse 18. Smoke. Which there was probably fire to go with that. There was a constant loud trumpet. It was getting louder and louder. It didn't let up. Somebody had a set of lungs. Okay. Some angel. Yeah. Okay, Trump, that was part of it. All right, what else? Dense cloud. It was stormy, smoky, lightning and thunder, and quaking. I, could, I was happy I could do that up here. That's kind of... One of these days I'll do a back... No, I won't do that. <clears throat> quaking, like earthquake stuff. So lots of different phenomena, okay? Remember that now as we listen to uh, verse 19... Uh, look again at verse 19 here. So that's kind of how it was. He says here, verse 18, you haven't come to a mountain that would be touched. And to a, but he said, you could touch it, although God said don't. But blazing fire, darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, Joe talked about that, and the sound of words, which the sound was that um, such that those who heard begged that no further would be, word would be spoken to them. So you get the idea here. It was a time of terror. A solid trumpet blast that didn't go away, just kept getting louder, increasing in volume. As if that's not enough, then the voice of God thunders from the mountain. So much so that they said, okay, uh, you don't have to talk anymore. A time of incredible terror for God's people. So in verse 20 and 21, just scan it, what Steve read a little bit ago. Verse 20 and 21, I want to deal a little bit of it. Why the terror? All right. First of all, and this is kind of obvious here, touching the mountain in that day meant death. But death. Um, in fact, said even an animal that ventures up there got to put it to death. First example of roadkill. Right from the Old Testament. Can you prove me wrong? Um, some for some reason, all of my, uh, all of my. Um, Field and Stream buddies are posting pictures with Bambi's daddy this week. You know, okay, he's got, you know, I killed this. Okay, well, that's part of this deal. Even if an animal approaches, you can read back in Psalm 19, you got to put it to death, okay? So first, touching the mountain meant death, certainly for a person, but even for an animal. Secondly, the picture here, if we went back to 19, and it's referred to here in, chapter, in, in verse uh, 20 and 21 or so. Um, um, Moses says what? 
I am so fearful, I am so fearful that I'm trembling. Moses was the first Quaker. Okay. All right. I needed that, Sherman. <laughs> okay, I needed that. All right. Isn't it interesting that the, the, one of the greatest leaders in history, the one leading over this group of two million plus people who had direct access to God himself was shaken in his boots. Interesting to me. Even Moses trembled. Now, let's skip ahead because I want us to go to verse 22. Now, this, this wonderful conjunction uh, begin, helps us begin verse 22. There's this picture of trembling and unapproachableness. Is that a word? Okay, and, and all that. But uh, there's some places in the scripture where I need to kind of Deal with uh, the conjunctions, especially here, the word but. That's how it was, but here is how it is now. Jopi, could I get you to read? Would you go to verse um, 22 and read down through 29? Would you mind to do that? Yes, ma'am. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the adorned of the Father, and If that was just poetry or prose, it'd be beautiful. But the fact that it's true and eternal makes it even better, doesn't it? Now, we said God, um, uh, the Old Testament picture back in Exodus 19 is don't come up here. Anybody coming up here is going to die except Moses. Moses is allowed to go there. I uh, read a story this week about uh, George W. Bush was getting off of Air Force One in Israel. And he bumped into Moses who didn't seem to notice him. He turns to Moses and said, I am George W. Bush, the president of the USA, the most powerful nation on the earth. Why didn't you greet me? Moses said, the last time I talked to a Bush, it cost me 40 years in the desert. Okay. Sherman, Sherman, you need to leave. You okay? All right. 
unapproachable, way too holy, all kinds of earthquakes and, and uh, that kind of stuff, loud. But, the writer of Hebrews says, there is a new city, there's a new mountain. This one, you and I would call Mount Zion. The church. It's not in the desert, according to verse 22. It's in the city, a heavenly city. And wherever that heavenly city is, is where the angels are. Where the angels are is a place of ceaseless joy. You want to catch that image for a minute? Many of you have recently lost loved ones. But their new address is a place where the angels are with ceaseless joy. That ought to comfort you a little. It does me. Mount Zion. There's the comparison. It, that but right there at the beginning of verse 22 is so important. The mountain, in addition to that, you ready? Is a present reality. That goes in your blank. It's a present reality and a permanent reality. They were hanging out at Mount Zion for a while. I'm sorry, at, at, at Mount Sinai for a while. But Mount Zion is present. It's now and it's forever. Present and, per and permanent. So if I'm looking at that and thinking, okay, if I'm comparing the two, which one do I want to check into? You know, if there's a Hampton Inn at Sinai or a Hampton Inn at Zion, which one do I want to go to? I want to go to the one at Zion, right? So how do you get in there? How do I become a member of this church? Well, there's an implication here in verse 24. Did you catch it? You got to have your name in the book. You got to have your name in the book. Um, look, at, look at verse 23 again. To the general assembly and the church of the firstborn. I just love that thought who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Uh, it's kind of this thought here, um, that the one who put the book together has paid the price already. The author is whom the New Testament calls the firstborn in all creation in Colossians 1. Colossians 1.15, Colossians 1.18, both of those places call him the firstborn of all creation. Um, it talks about him having preeminence. You and I know this to talk about Jesus. A lot to, Philippians 4, other places, talks about the firstborn. And you and I being members of the church of the firstborn. Christ's church. Now, it's talked about here. Don't get confused about um, the, the discussion here about Abel in verse 24. It's just comparing his sacrifice uh, to, um, to Christ's sacrifice. In chapter 11, uh, Abel is referred to as a person of faith. But the question is, have you ever needed a mediator? Now, at my school, we're trying to start a new... Uh, science program, or try to start a, 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 a pre-med program, and some other things, and uh, 
Uh, the president went a couple weeks ago with some other people in that area, and uh, they went to Washington to, to talk to some people about a grant uh, from uh, um, uh, one of those kind of uh, federal programs that, that uh, uh, is, is interested in science and health and all those kinds of things. But the problem is we had to pay a guy an exorbitant amount of money just to introduce us to the right people. We call him a lobbyist, right? He had to mediate for us. And we had to pay him money. But this is really interesting to me because the one who introduces you at the church of the firstborn has already paid the price for your admission. His own blood. Come on in. As long as you're with me, you're in. Maybe there have been times when you've needed a mediator. You got the best one. Talked about here in verse 23 and 24. Jesus is your mediator. And then 25, it talks about stubbornness a little more. Kind of again, thinking about those people back in the desert who were stubborn. In verse 25, See to it that you don't refuse him who is speaking. For if those who didn't escape when they refused him, who, who warned him there on the earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. I want you to go to chapter 2. Just turn back three or four pages to the left. Listen to what the Hebrews writer says about this. Hebrews 2, verse 2. For if the words spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression of disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. Don't be stubborn about this. Don't turn back. And so, he again goes back to the Exodus 19 phenomena re uh, reference. And in verse 26, he says, guess what? Not only will the earth be shaken, but the heavens will be shaken too. Uh, write a passage for me this time of year. You hear me talk a lot about music, but don't, write a passage for me this time of year. When, I'm, when it's, okay, it's, it's holiday season. You've heard me talk about some things that I have to listen to. But, but really, the beginning of this, uh, some of it hasn't come yet because it's more you know, sappy and, and uh, um, secular. But I did turn on a couple of mornings this week in my study, Handel's Messiah. And I remember the bass recitative where, where um, some wonderful bass singer and, from singing along with the London Symphony in, in this thing on my iPod. And I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. Haggai 2, right out of the Old Testament, quoted here in Hebrews 12. I will shake it. Everything will be shaken. There will be a new order in place. Uh, I read this week, it's kind of wonderful. I read this week um, uh, in Matthew 27 that when, when Jesus died on the cross, there were earthquakes. Are you aware of that? When Jesus died on the cross, there were earthquakes. And during that time, the veil of the temple, which was thick, was rent 
in twain, to use King, King James' language, from the top to the bottom. He's shaking things up. And he's still shaking things up. After the shaking, verse 27 says, the only thing that's left will be the unshakable. The new has come. And so the last two verses of our text for today tell us how we ought to approach this truth. Let me, let me share that with you just as we kind of close out. Give me one more minute. It, it talks about the awesomeness of God. Um, it talks about uh, we've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. It's this thought that God is awesome, the only one who is, so we ought to approach him. We can approach him according to chapter 4, but we ought to approach him with reverence and awe. But even more importantly for us, maybe this week, it says, let us be thankful. You know, there's kind of a thought here that in the light of all he's done here, should I not just become not only thankful for that, thankful for this, whether somebody at, at the dinner table on Thursday is probably going to say, tell us one thing you're thankful for, okay? Wouldn't it be better to just be generally a thankful person. You, you heard Marty preach last week on being a generous person. I'm going to challenge you today to be a thankful person. Don't be the person that, that um, somebody holds the door open for you at a, at a restaurant today. Thank you. Somebody serves you. Thank you. Even though you don't have to do that. But the thankful person says thanks all the time, often. To those that I would argue are above you, those who are kind of on your same level, and even those that you might feel in some ways are beneath you. Can I, can I ask you to take up the challenge with me? To just become a thankful person. And if you need references... Hebrews 12, 28, and 29 would be just perfect. Because of what all he's done for us, let us then be thankful.